in our catechism on question number two. Question number two. We did, uh, again, we'd mentioned that these are broken up into Lord's Days. And Lord's Day, the first one is two questions, but the first question is pretty lengthy. So we only did it last time. So today we'll do question two, and then we'll do questions three, four, and five. They're all pretty short. So I think we should have no problem uh, covering, covering that ground. So let's pray, and then we'll begin our Bible study. Heavenly Father, we are very grateful, Lord, for your goodness and kindness to us. Lord, we thank you that, Lord, we're able to meet in such, Lord, a, a comfortable setting, Lord, without threat of, of our life, Lord, or even of uh, imprisonment, Lord, of, of the things that many believers throughout history, Lord, even many of the men who composed and wrote uh, these catechisms, Lord, and the uh, movements in which these things were born. Lord, we know that many of them faced great sufferings and hardships and persecutions because of their beliefs and because of, Lord, the faith that they were contending for. So, Father, we thank you that uh, we are able to, to meet together, Lord, unharassed, Lord, to study your word, to fellowship with one another. Lord, these are great gifts that you've given to us. And, Lord, we do pray that we not take them lightly. Lord, we ask that you would help us to form our thoughts, Lord, uh, concerning you and the way of salvation, Lord, from your word, Lord, that we would uh, walk in truth and in righteousness. Lord, as well, we're thankful, Lord, for uh, the meal that we enjoyed this morning, Lord, especially for Mr. Michael and Casey, Lord, the work that they do in order, Lord, for us to eat so well. Uh, so, Father, we thank you for that. and. Pray your blessing you be upon them. So, Lord, be with us today as we study. And, Lord, we ask that you, again, grow us in our faith. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, question number two. And this question is, again, born out of the first one. The first one being, what is your only comfort in life and death? Here, our only comfort in terms of salvation, our only spiritual comfort, is knowing that we belong, both body and soul, life and in death, to our faithful Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. And it describes then all that Christ has done for us there in that first question. And really, this catechism is explaining, right, throughout the course of it, it is unfolding this issue or this concept of what is the comfort and hope for the believer, right, in this present life. And what are those things necessary for us to know and learn in order to come to a realization and a proper understanding of this comfort and hope that we have in the gospel and in our salvation. And this is the course of the Christian life. We are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? We have to, at our salvation, there must be a sufficient understanding of the things of God, right? of the gospel of Christ, for us to come to a saving knowledge of the truth. However, all of us are growing in our knowledge. None of us have perfect knowledge. Even the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says that he knows in part. So we all know in part, and our sanctification is our growth in the understanding of the gospel, right? In the various components of the nature of God, of our own sinfulness, in what Christ has done, in the response that we should give in light of these things, we are to continue to grow in this till we reach maturity, full manhood in Christ. And then when we are transferred from this life to the life to come, then we will know fully, even as we are fully known, right? In this life, we will scratch the surface of an understanding of the gospel, of our own sin, of God's holiness and righteousness, of the sacrifice that Christ has performed for us. But in the life to come, we will have a perfect understanding of these things, and then we will know the depths of the love, the kindness, the mercy and grace of God, and our whole life will be given in worship to the Lord. As we grow in this, in this life, then our life will be offered up more and more as a sacrifice of praise to the Lord. We'll grow in our thanksgiving, our praise, our desire to worship, to be obedient to God. This is why it's so important and crucial for us to understand the gospel and specifically to understand our own sin, how it is an offense against God and what Christ has done for us. For the greater we understand our sin, the greater love we will have for God. He who is forgiven much, 
loves much. All of us have been forgiven much. We just need to come to that understanding. How much we have been forgiven of. And this is what the catechism is designed to teach us. How it is that Christ has forgiven us and how our life is to be offered in praise to God in light of these things. Okay, so that's what begins in question two and runs throughout the course of this catechism. So question two, what do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? This comfort being the comfort of salvation. So what do we need to know? What is essential to know and understand in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? The answer, first, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all of my sins and misery. And third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. First, they say, how great are my sins and misery. How great is the sin of man? And what is the miserable condition in which I am born in, in which I live under when I'm in a state of sin? We have to understand our sin if we are going to understand salvation. Jesus says it is not the well, the healthy that need a physician, but it is only the sick. And so it is also in salvation. In terms of spiritual physician, it is not those who are healthy, who are self-righteous, who believe that they are good people, who are going to go to Christ, but only those who know the sickness of their own heart and have come to an understanding of their sin. If a person has a disease but is unaware of his disease, he's never going to go to the doctor. But when he becomes aware of his sickness and the gravity of that sickness, then he will seek out a physician, he will seek out the cure. And so it is with the spiritual realm. All of us, all of mankind, are sick from head to toe with sin. The whole body is completely corrupt. The whole man has been corrupted by sin. However, most people live under a delusion that they are very good, that they are very righteous people, and that based upon their own goodness, they will stand before God and they will be admitted into heaven. And what the gospel teaches us must convince us of is that we are not righteous, that we are not good, but rather we are completely corrupted and our sin and misery is very great before God so that none of us can stand in his presence, but all of us in our natural state and based upon our own works are completely condemned before God and deserving of eternal death and eternal destruction. So the first thing that must be understood is how great are my sins and misery. And this is what the preaching of the law is intended to do. The Puritans and the Reformers often speak of the law and the gospel. We need to preach the law and the gospel. The law in order to convince us and show us of our sin, and then the gospel as the remedy to that sin, which is what the second point is. Secondly, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. What is the means appointed by God by which a man can be delivered from his sins and misery, right? This is what the gospel is teaching us, not by our works, not by our own efforts or our own righteousness, but only through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. By grace, through faith, in the sacrifice of Christ, what he has done for us. This is the means appointed by God by which sinners who are in a state of misery because of their sin can be delivered from that sin and can have the joy, the hope, the comfort of eternal life in Christ. And then the third aspect is how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. This is the result of our salvation, that our life is offered as a sacrifice of praise to the Lord, right? As it says in Romans chapter 12, that we're not to be conformed to the world any longer, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that by testing we may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect, right? That our whole life is to be presented to God as a living sacrifice, a living sacrifice because of what he's done for us. He's delivered us from all of our sins. He's forgiven us of all of them. He's given to us his Holy Spirit. He is sanctifying us. He has an inheritance waiting for us in heaven one day. And how should we respond to this? But with gratefulness and thankfulness to God by offering our very lives in his service, by worshiping him and living a godly life. This is the response, the fruit of our 
salvation, not the basis of our salvation, but the proper and fitting response of salvation is that we give our very lives to God and we live our life for his glory. Okay, let's see the passages here. Romans 3, Romans 3, verses 9 to 10. Romans 3, 9 to 10. And this is dealing with how great my sins and misery are. How great is the sin of men? Romans 3, verse 9 says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Here the apostle is showing, he's coming to his conclusion in this opening part of the book of Romans. From Romans 1.18 to Romans 3 verse 20, he is proving the universal sinfulness of men. Both displayed first with the Gentiles in chapter 1, then also with the Jews in chapter 2 in the first part of chapter 3. And then this is his conclusion to what he has just taught in chapter 1 and 2. That the conclusion is, we Jews are no better off than the Gentiles. By nature, we are all children of wrath. We are all under our own sin. And that there is no one righteous, not even one. So no man is righteous before God based upon his own nature, based upon his own works. But rather, everyone is condemned in their sin. No one is righteous, not even one. 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 10. 1 John 1 10 says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Here, this is speaking even to believers, right? Even to believers, even after conversion, anyone in this life who says that they have not sinned is a liar. And God's truth is not in them. Certainly that's true of us. If it's true of us after our conversion, certainly it was true of us before our conversion. No one can make a claim that they are righteous in the sight of God, but rather everyone has sinned. And the wages of sin is death. This is the just reward or punishment that God will give on the basis of the sin of man. So, how great is the sin and misery? It is universally great. Every single person who has ever been born into this world, from Adam to the end of the world, this is true of them. All of them are in sin, and all of them live a miserable life before God. They are condemned. They are under the penalty of death. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. But only the expectation of fury and a fire that will burn for all eternity. We must come to this understanding if we are going to be saved, that we are sinners, that we have transgressed the law of God, and that we are deserving of eternal condemnation, and that there is nothing that we can do through our own efforts, through our own works, to satisfy or pacify the wrath of God against us. No one can do this, because how can a sinful man produce works that are righteous and pleasing in the sight of God. If they are sinful and they are the source of those works, then the works themselves will also be sinful. How can a fountain that is salty produce fresh water? How can a briar bush produce grapes or figs or some good fruit? Whatever it is by nature is what it will produce. And a man who seeks to produce his own righteousness and produce his own good works and present that to God as the basis for his salvation and why God should allow and permit him into eternal life is going to be sorely disappointed because whatever he is, whatever he produces is corrupted because it comes from a fountain that is in and of itself corrupt, the very heart of man. So all men are then born in this state of sin and misery, and it is manifested in many ways throughout the course of our life, in our actions, in our words, in our thoughts, in everything about us. Okay, then secondly, how then can a man be delivered from his sin and misery? This is the chief topic that the Bible is dealing with. 
how it is that we can be delivered from our sin and misery. How men who are sinful can be reconciled to God so that instead of being condemned, instead of having wrath of God against them, instead of having no peace, they can come to the comfort and joy of eternal salvation. John 17. And there is only one way, one means established by God by which a man can be saved from his sins and delivered from all of these things. John 17, verse 3 says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Right? Eternal life is seen and known in knowing the only true God. Right? This is eternal life. Eternal life is more than just eternal existence and the joy and bliss that one experiences in heaven. Right? Because for many people, when they think of heaven or eternal life, most of them are thinking in terms of hobbies, interests, things that they enjoy in this life that they're going to do for all eternity. So people who like to fish in this life, then in heaven, what are they going to do? They're going to fish all the time, right? And they're always going to catch big ones. People who like to hunt in this life, they're going to hunt all the time in heaven and they won't have to uh, kill small deer. They'll kill only big ones, right? People who like to play golf in this life, they'll play golf in heaven. And this is how people generally speak when they talk about their loved ones, when they talk about various people who are, you know, up there looking down upon us now, right? And they're out there hitting holes in ones left and right. Okay, this is the way the world thinks of these things. But what is eternal life? What is the very source? What is the basis of eternal life? The, of the bliss and joy that believers know. It is knowing God. Knowing God and having this relationship with Him. Eternal life is knowing the Father. So in a sense, we already now, if we know God, we have already come into a knowledge and an experience of eternal life, in a sense, right? We, we have eternal life now because we know God now. Now, we don't have it in its full and final consummation. That will be in the life to come. But all believers now have already participated in and have a foretaste of eternal life because eternal life is found in knowing the only true God. Then how do we come to know the only true God? Well, according to this, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. No one can come to a knowledge of the Father apart from the Son. The only way we can come to a true saving knowledge of God the only way that a man can experience and come into an understanding of eternal life is through the Son, Jesus Christ. In any other way by which men seek eternal life apart from Jesus Christ is futile, it is vain, and it will not lead to eternal life. But it is idolatry of their own making. This is what the pagans, what the idolaters are doing. This is what the false religions are doing. They are offering people some form of eternal life or eternal existence, but they're doing so apart from Jesus Christ and saying that we can come to a knowledge of the true God in various ways. This is the very foundation of all relativism or pluralism. Relativism and pluralism teaches that there are many different ways that we can come to know the true God and that we can have eternal life. One of those ways is through Jesus Christ or through Christianity. Another way is through Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or various pagan rituals and pagan things. But the Bible teaches that this is not the case at all. The only way we can come to a knowledge of eternal life and to the experience of it is through Jesus Christ. Only through him can this be realized for a man. So we have to come to a proper understanding of who God is. And God has revealed himself chiefly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So salvation is only found within Christianity. Then even within Christianity, we have to determine whether the teaching is consistent with the Bible or whether it is inconsistent with the Bible. Because in many Christian traditions, what they are teaching is not consistent with the Bible and the, real, uh, the revelation of who Jesus Christ is. 
So if those Christian traditions are not teaching consistently with what the Bible says about Christ, then even they are void of salvation as well, such as Roman Catholicism or other large Christian cults. Uh, There is no salvation there, even though they claim to be Christian. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. Acts 4 verse 12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Here, in speaking of Jesus Christ, who is the chief cornerstone, He is the cornerstone of the household of faith by which God is building his church. And he is the only source of eternal salvation that has been provided by God. So if people reject Christ, then there is no salvation. Whether that be a false religion or whether that be a false form of Christianity who has a different Christ other than the Christ revealed in the Bible. Salvation can be found in no one else. There is no other name that God has given that men may call upon in order to be saved from their sin and from the misery that comes with it. Then also Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 and verse 43. Acts 10, 43. Says, of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Of him, speaking of Christ, all of the prophets bear witness. The prophets are prophesying right before the coming of Christ of his person and of his work. They're all bearing witness and testifying of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that he is the only way that one can be delivered from all of their sins, that he can receive the forgiveness of sins only by believing in his name, his name representing his person. We must believe in the true Jesus Christ, Jesus, the son of God. And if we believe in him and trust in him, then our sins can and will be forgiven and they will be washed away through his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. Then the third part of this question How I am to be thankful to God for such a deliverance. What is the proper response to such a deliverance? Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16. Matthew 5, 16 says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Here, let your light shine before men. This being the righteous life, the righteous words, right, that we are to adorn the gospel with. Our life is to be an adornment of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What God has done within our heart, giving to us new life, imputing to us the very righteousness of Christ, this is to manifest itself in the way that we live so that we do become lights that shine And as we grow and are sanctified, we shine greater and greater and greater. And then one day when we're perfected, we will shine like the stars in the sky, according to Daniel chapter 12, verses 3 and 4. We are to let our light shine before men. This is our response to what God has done for us. Our response of thanksgiving for his salvation. Romans chapter 6. And this response of gratitude is universal. It is not for just some Christians, but it is for all Christians. And it is the evidence that one has truly become a partaker of Christ. Romans chapter 6, verse 12 says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Here, the apostle in this section of Romans is dealing with the issue of sanctification. 
right? What is the proper fitting response of the salvation we have in Christ? And here it is that we do not let sin reign in our mortal bodies any longer. In our previous state, in our natural state, what a sinful man must do, because sin is his ruler and master, is he is always presenting his members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. He uses his mind, he uses his tongue, he uses his hands, he uses his eyes, right? All of the instruments of his body he uses to commit sins against God. But now, because of salvation, he says, don't let this be true of you any longer. Now, those members that you used to use for sin, now use them for the sake of righteousness. Instead of speaking evil words, speak what is pure and wholesome and good and built and is edifying for the church. Instead of using your eyes to lust and to look at things that you shouldn't look at, use it for what is pure and right. Your mind, instead of dwelling upon sin and evil, use it to meditate on the glory of God. Right? Instead of using your hands to commit mischief, to shed innocent blood, use your hands to serve one another, right? to serve the church, to build up the body of Christ. Use your instruments in this way. And of course, in this present life, because of the mixture, right, we have the spirit within us, the inner man has been renewed, while the outer man is wasting away, this will always be a mixture in the child of God. A mixture of sin and using our members for unrighteousness, and a mixture of godliness and using our members for righteousness. And what we are to do is to grow in this. Grow in this throughout the course of our life so that sin has less control over our members and over our life and the Spirit has more and more control so that we're living a more and more godly life. And this takes place in steps, right? In a progression called progressive sanctification. And no one arrives at perfection in this present life. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, 8 to 10. Ephesians 5, 8 to 10. It says, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Formerly, in your former life, he says you were darkness. You lived in darkness. You lived in idolatry. You worshipped those things that were dark and evil. And then your life was darkness. You were enslaved to various lusts. But now you're no longer in darkness. Now you are in the light of the Lord. You've come to a true knowledge and understanding of God and of the way of God. Right? This is the way it is. In idolatry, the theology is darkness. And then the morality accompanying that theology is also darkness. So that both what they believe about the God or the gods is false, and the way that they live is also false and evil. But when we come to a true knowledge, now we have a proper understanding of God, proper concepts of God, a true and an accurate understanding of the true God. This is light, and there is an accompanying morality that comes with this proper theology or a way that we should live. Instead of being enslaved to various lusts, now we know that we ought to live as light. We ought to do those things that are pleasing to the Lord. Because the fruit of light consists in goodness, righteousness, and truth. This is what should define our life as Christians. Goodness, righteousness, truth. And he says, try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And where will we learn what is pleasing to the Lord? Will it come out of our own mind? Is it going to come from television? Is it going to come from the culture? Right? None of those things are going to be a benefit or an aid to us in learning what is pleasing to the Lord. But the Word of God will. The Word of God will teach us what is pleasing to God so that we know how to walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2 Verses 9 and 10. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now 
You are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Here, he's talking about Christians or believers here. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. This is who we are in Christ. Formerly, we were not a people. We did not belong to God. We were false sons. We were disobedient children. But now, because we have received mercy from God, we belong to the Lord. And what nation is there, right? What religion is there that the people that associate with that religion do not obey their gods, right? Every religion has a code of ethics, a code of conduct that accompanies that religion. And people who are adherents to Islam follow the code of Islam. People who are adherents to Buddhism or Hinduism, they follow the code of Buddhism and Hinduism. They follow their false gods. Well, if they do that for false gods, then shouldn't we do it for the true God? If we are his people and we bear his name, then should we not live according to his law, his rules, his morality, what he says is good and right for us? Of course we should. We belong to the Lord. We are his possession. Therefore, we should give our lives to him and live in the way that he tells us to live. And this is the response, the fitting response of our belief and understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is never the basis of our salvation, but it is always the fruit of what God has done. Because we have received mercy, then we ought to live in this certain way as a response of these things. And a person who does not do that is proving that they have never received mercy or that they do not understand the very gospel or the salvation of God. Okay, next, question three. Question three. Now, these three questions, how do you come to know your sin and misery? How are you delivered from your sin and misery? And what is the response of being delivered from your sin and misery? This is what the rest of the catechism is taken up with. It's describing these three questions in many, many different ways, okay? The first being, how do we come to know our sin and misery? Question three, from where do you know your sins and misery? From the law of God. The law of God. This is why, again, we mentioned earlier, we need to preach law and gospel. Law and gospel. Because the law of God teaches us of the disease of sin. It teaches us of how corrupt, how depraved we are so that we have a proper understanding of the human condition, of the human heart, and of our own sin. And this is not something that we just need before our conversion. We need to be taught the nature of our sin for the remainder of our life because we'll never fully understand just how corrupt and depraved we are. We're always going to be growing in this. And as we grow in our understanding of this, then we will naturally grow in our understanding of what Christ has done for us. And it will give us greater love for God. The more we understand our sin, the greater our love for God will be. This is why Jesus says, he who is forgiven much, he will love much. The more we understand our sin, the more we understand forgiveness, the more greater our love will be for God. And the greater our love we're going to want to do what's pleasing to him. This is how we grow in the Christian life. So preaching the law of God is beneficial for everyone. It's beneficial for unbelievers because it shows them their sin so that they might repent. And it's beneficial for believers because it gives them a fuller understanding of their salvation. It's a benefit for everyone. And the law of God is given to show us how corrupt we are. Romans three nineteen and 20. Romans 3, 19 and 20 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. Here, the law was given so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God. And whatever the law says, right, it speaks to those who are under the law. 
the law, in terms of it being published in the world, in Exodus chapter 20 at Mount Sinai, the law was given to the Jews. It was not given to the Gentiles at that time, but it was entrusted to the Jewish people. And that it was given to them shows that they are under that law, that they are expected to yield to God this perfect obedience to the law. But who can give to God perfect obedience to the law? Who can obey it without ever committing an infraction? It's impossible, right? Because of our sinful nature. But the moral standards of the law are still binding upon all men. Every man is bound and obligated to give to God perfect love of God, meaning loving the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, might, and strength, and they are to love their neighbor as themselves. And they are to do this from womb to tomb, and they are to do it perfectly in both the outer man and the inner man, in the heart and in the thoughts. And who can do this? Who can live up to this perfect standard of righteousness? And we know from James that he who keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point has become accountable for all of it. So the law does present and it does offer to men eternal life on the basis of perfect obedience. But with the law, it also offers eternal condemnation for just one infraction. And how many infractions do we have? We have thousands of infractions, millions of infractions against the law. Our sins reach up to the heavens. And we are guilty of breaking the law first by our own nature. We have original sin, this corrupt nature, this guilt that we have inherited from Adam. So we already are under condemnation even from our birth. And then we have all of our actual sins that we commit against God, both in the heart, in the mind, in the mouth, and in our actions. So no one can keep the law of God. So then the question is, why does God give it? If no one can keep it, then why does God give it? And why does God demand that we obey it? And why does God threaten us with punishments for disobedience? And this is to teach us of our sin. And that's why it says here, by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law was given in order to reveal, to magnify, to make more prominent the very sin of man so that men would see and understand that there's nothing they can do for their own salvation. This was the corruption of the Jews. They believed that because the law was given to them, that they could, by their obedience to the law, earn their own salvation. That's why Jesus condemns the Jews in John chapter 5. When he tells them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, yet it is they that bear witness to me. You're searching the scriptures thinking that in the scriptures there is eternal life found that you can receive based upon your own obedience to the law, your own righteousness. But did the law ever... As it came from God, and as it was revealed to Moses, did Moses teach the people that they could be saved by their own obedience, by their own law-keeping? No. But that's what he says in John chapter 5. Moses will be the one who condemns him on the day of judgment, because who did Moses write about? Moses wrote about Christ. Yes, Moses wrote the law, but he wrote the law not so that the people would think that they could be saved by their obedience to the law, but to show them that they are completely unable to be saved by their own righteousness so that they would look for a source of righteousness that would come from someone else. And that source was announced to the people before the coming of Christ in the sacrificial system. The various rites and rituals of sacrifice were showing the people that they themselves were corrupt and that they needed atonement on the basis of their sins. And to look for that source of righteousness, not from themselves and not from the earth, but where does it have to come from? It has to come out of heaven, right? He has to come from heaven, the man from heaven, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So the law given then to show us our sin and misery. When we look into the law, 
as a mirror that is portraying the perfect righteousness of God. And we see our life in light of what the law says. We see our life reflected in the law. It reveals to us what? Complete corruption, complete sin, that we are all under the condemnation of sin. And it leaves us completely void of any hope on the basis of our own obedience. Question four, this is because of what the law requires. What does the law of God require of us? Christ teaches us this summary in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is the summary, the summary of the law. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And then this summary of the law is then further defined in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are teaching or further explaining what it means to love God and what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. And this love of both God and neighbor has to be with all the heart, soul, and with all the mind, meaning the entire being, both the inner man and the outer man, must be in perfect conformity to this law of God. And who is born under this law? Everyone, right? Everyone from Adam till the end of the world is obligated to give to God this obedience. And if they do not give this obedience to God, then they are under the guilt of their sin and they are deserving of eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. This is the very law that God gave to Adam in the garden of Eden, to love God and to love his neighbor as himself. And that law, that covenant is still in effect today. Men are still born under that covenant that Adam was placed in in the Garden of Eden. So long as they remain dead in their trespasses and sins, this is what God demands of them. And if they do not present that to God, then they are under condemnation. And because of sin nature, no one can do this. It's impossible for anyone to meet this standard, though the obligation is still there. So that's why the law only results in a curse. The curse of the law is eternal condemnation. And because of the sin nature, when we come to the law, though the law, according to Romans 7, is holy, righteous, and good, it only results in condemnation for men. But this is not the fault of the law. It is not the fault of the lawgiver. Whose fault is it? It's our own fault because of our sin in our complicity with Adam in the Garden of Eden. He being our representative, and we sinned in Adam, and we have that guilt there. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And verse 5. Verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So here, again, even for Israel, even in the Old Covenant, from Sinai onward, the expectation was to love God with all the heart, with all the soul, and with all the might. It was never merely external obedience, but it was internal primarily, and then that manifests itself externally as well. Then Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19, and we'll read verses 17 and 18. Leviticus 19, verse 17 says, you shall not hate your fellow countryman in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So here, contrary to what many believe, the Old Testament and the Old Covenant did teach us to love, right? Love is not some New Testament concept but it's even in the Old Covenant here. And the love for the countryman is to come from where? In verse 17, your heart. You are to love them from your heart. And as a result of loving them from your heart, 
you're not to take vengeance or bear a grudge against them. A grudge being the internal aspect, and then vengeance being acting upon this grudge or this hatred that one has in the heart by speaking evil against them or by taking matters into your own hands and harming them physically, whatever it is. You're not supposed to do that in the Old Testament or New Testament because it's one in the same law, right? One law from beginning until the very end of time. One way that we are to offer obedience to God. Okay, so this is what the law of God requires. And we know, according to James chapter 2, verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law and fails in one point becomes accountable for what? For all of it. So even if you don't murder, but you do commit adultery, what are you? You're a lawbreaker. Or if you don't commit adultery, but you do lie, you're still a lawbreaker. Or if you don't commit adultery physically, outwardly, but you do it internally then you're a lawbreaker and you have become guilty of all of it because the entire law is built upon this foundation of love of God. So if you fail at one point, you're also failing at the greater point. And the greater point is to love God, right? Because loving our neighbor is a manifestation of loving God. So there is a unity in the law of God. So if we fail at one point, we become guilty and accountable of all of it, and we are under the guilt and condemnation of being a lawbreaker. This is the way the law looks at men. You either are a keeper of the law or you're a breaker of the law. There isn't a gray area. There aren't degrees. You either keep it or you break it. And if you break it at one point, then you're accountable for all of it. You're just as guilty and deserving as of death and condemnation as, as anyone else. And we've all broken it many, many ways, both internally and externally. So there is no hope of salvation and eternal life through our own obedience or through our own righteousness, through our own law-keeping, but only the expectation of guilt. And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, it says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, as it is written, right? Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ redeems us from the curse of the law because all of us are under a curse. The law pronounces blessings and curses. Blessing for obedience, curses for disobedience. And because of the sin nature, all of us have disobeyed the law so all of us are under the curse of the law. And the only way we can be delivered from this curse is by Christ becoming a curse for us. Okay, then question number five. Can you keep all of this perfectly? Can a man keep God's law perfectly, right? That's the key that we must understand. Typically, what people want to do is so long as they, in their own mind, are better than other people then they think that they are righteous. So if I'm better than Mike Morris, then I'm a righteous man and I'm going to make it. So I just have to find one person out there that I'm better than. And everyone in their own mind can find many people that they think that they're better than because everyone harbors in his own heart and mind his own superiority and his righteousness over and against another. So they think, well, I'm not as bad as Hitler. Therefore, I'm going to make it. Or I'm not as bad as Stalin. Therefore, it's going to be all right. Yeah, th those kinds of people will go to hell, but not good people like us. And I'm sure that you've all heard people talk like this. They'll say they're good people. They're, they're good people. But who defines goodness? Right? Who gets to determine what goodness is acceptable in the sight of God? Do I get to make that determination? Do you get to make that determination? Who is the only determiner? Who is the only judge by which we will stand before him and will judge us, not based on our standard of righteousness, but his standard of righteousness? There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. Only our Lord Jesus Christ. And we will stand before him based on his standard. And his standard is perfect obedience to the law. And can anyone keep this perfectly? And the answer is no. I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. All of us hate God and our neighbor. Romans chapter 3. The law requires us to love God and love our neighbor, but we are inclined 
or we have a bent to hate God and hate our neighbor. Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. And then Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So no one is righteous, no, not one. All sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. Any man who says he has not sinned, we know that man is self-deceived, he is a liar, and he also is calling God a liar. Can we call God a liar and escape? No. We can't call God a liar. That's a very evil thing to do. But when a man says, pronounces his own righteousness, he's making God out to be a liar. Even when he says, well, I'm not perfect, but if he's not defining his sin according to the way God does in the Bible, he's making God out to be a liar. And this is what many people are doing. They think that based on their goodness, they will go to heaven. But this is a slap in the very face of God, an affront upon his righteousness. Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Here, the wickedness is great. Every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. A natural man cannot do anything to please God. It is impossible for him to do anything that is acceptable in the sight of God. Even a natural man, take an idolater, a Muslim, whatever. They have a family, they have children. Even that man who gets up, he goes to work every day, he works hard for his family, he provides for his family, he does some things that are good socially and good for his family. But is it good in the sight of God? No. He's still not offering it to God in terms of what God expects. And this is why even when they do something that is socially or civically good, that may be good for their family, it's still only evil continually in the sight of God. Because it's not coming from a heart of love for God. It's not coming out of faith. It's not born out of faith, but rather it's born out of his own flesh. So everything that a sinful man does is detestable in the sight of God. Even if people might say, you know, even if he's not murdering someone, but is going to work every day and working hard and is honest in that sense, he's still not acceptable in the sight of God because of his sin nature. Genesis chapter 8, verse 21. Genesis eight twenty-one. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Now this is significant because before the flood in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, it was declared that man is sinful and evil from his heart, evil from his youth. Then after the flood, God repeats the same truth concerning the nature of man. So could the flood itself change the nature of man? No, it could not. Something greater than the flood is needed to change the heart of man. The flood could not do it because it still came from the same corrupt stock, which was Adam, and Noah was a sinner by nature, and then all of his sons inherited that nature from Noah, and then all of their sons would inherit it from them. And this is the way it is in the course of human history. This is a true, accurate depiction of mankind, only evil continually evil from the heart, from their youth. And here, we're closer to creation. We're closer to the garden. We're closer to man's state of innocence. And already this is said. Now, we're thousands of years past that. And are people getting better or worse? 
Are we increasing or are we getting worse and worse? It's depredation, right? We are getting increasingly culture, society, sin. It is getting worse and worse. They go from bad to worse. So they're already bad here and we're not getting any better. We're still as equally bad. We may even be worse today, right? In the things that people do. Jeremiah 17 verse 9. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. It says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful. It is desperately sick. And who can understand it? Even men do not understand. Even we as Christians do not have a perfect understanding of how desperately sick and evil our heart is. But who does understand it? Only God does. And only God can reveal this to us. And we must pray and ask God to teach us. Lord, teach teach me how sick my heart is. Teach me how great is my sin. Make me know and understand these things so that I will understand what you've done for me and how I should love you and serve you with all of my heart. And if the heart is like that, and from the heart flow the issues of life, then what else is going to be like that? The heart is the source, right? It is the very fountain from which everything else flows. If the heart is desperately sick, the mind, the will, the emotions, the desires, right? The actions, the words, the thoughts, everything else is going to be corrupt as well. The will, this is why there is no free will, right? There is no part of the will that is untouched by sin but all of it has been completely corrupted. Romans 7.23. Romans 7.23 says, But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Here, there is this law of sin in the members, right? In the body, in the corrupted flesh. In the unbeliever, this controls and dominates his entire life. In the believer... He has a twofold nature. He has the spiritual component, but he also still maintains this fleshly component that is waging war and is opposed to the very things of God. Romans chapter 8, verses 6 to 8. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There, the flesh is hostile to God. It is death. It does not subject itself to the law of God. The law of love, love God and love your neighbor, the flesh will not subject itself to this law of God. It's not even able to do so, it says. The flesh, which dominates and controls us in our natural state, is so opposed to the law of God that it does not have the ability, the capacity to even obey the law of God. And that's why those in the flesh cannot please God. A fleshly, worldly man cannot do anything that is pleasing to God. Even if he stops and helps his neighbor change his flat tire on the side of the road. Even if he carries out the groceries for the old lady from the grocery store and loads it in her car, right? Not all men are as depraved outwardly as they could be, but no one can do anything that is pleasing in the sight of God, by which he may be commended to God and be accepted into his favor. It is impossible for this to be the case. Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians 2 verses 1 and 3 says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. There, the natural man, dead in trespasses and sins, This is the way we walk. We walked and followed the devil, right? This is who we lived after. We lived like the devil. Sons of disobedience, living according to the lust of the flesh, indulging 
the flesh and the mind. Nature, by nature, children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. All men, naturally, by nature, they are children of wrath. Meaning, they are under the wrath of God because they have violated the law of God. The law of God requires eternal death condemnation for those who break the law. The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Is what God told Adam in Genesis chapter 2. And we are all born under this curse. The curse of the law under eternal condemnation. And unable to deliver ourselves. Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 and verse 3. Titus 3 3 says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Here again, he's describing the former state. Right before their conversion, this is what is true of all men. Foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, and then spending our life in malice, envy, hateful, hating one another. That's as they said here. We are inclined by nature to hate God and hate neighbor. Hateful toward God and hating one another. This is the way that we live in our natural state. And because of this, all men are under the curse of the law. We have to understand this to see our sin and our misery so that we can see the very salvation of God. So we'll stop there for today. And next time we'll pick up in verse or question six, seven, and eight.